I think the more aware we are about the way people feel about their energy system, the more we, aware we are of, of how people want to be treated, the more likely we are to succeed in the transition. So you've got two halves there. You've got a sense of people feeling that their energy companies are looking after them, are treating them well, and then you've got this transition happening alongside that. And if we get that in, five, in the next five years or, or we make the next step on that journey, that will be fantastic. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. This is the second part of an episode where we hear from Jonathan Brearley, CEO of Ofgem. Part one is available on our podcast feed, and if you haven't done so already, we suggest you listen to that one first. In part two, Jonathan speaks more broadly about Ofgem, its long-term focus areas and its environmental perspective, and about networks and energy markets. John Federson, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora, was asking the questions, and it's his voice you'll hear first. It's a five-year contract at Ofgem. Presumably, it can be renewed for you. You're not yet halfway in. I don't know, off the top of my head, probably 18 months in or something like that. At the end of your five-year term, what would success look like for you? What does Ofgem look like? What's it, what's it doing? What's its role? Well, let's start with the market. And, you know, I think there is an increasingly clear picture of, of where we want to go. And... You know, I've talked about this a bit before and it comes on to some of the sort of market reforms and the questions around you know, whether what we have is fit for purpose. I, I, I passionately believe that there is going to be a very changed and a very different retail offer that's going to emerge. And I hope that it emerges in, in the next five years. And customers really are going to begin to see value and have the capacity without getting involved to be able to adapt what they do to the way the system is evolving and to be able to benefit financially from that. And I think that means ultimately a, a very different kind of retail offering. You know, question what it means technically for the market, but certainly a very different offer to customers. And I hope that we, we bring shape to that and we realize that. Equally, if I were to take you know, the three big kind of pillars of decarbonization from an energy perspective, you know, I hope that power continues to, 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 to accelerate and that the change in power continues to be as fast and as dynamic as I think it's been over the last five or 10 years. I'm hoping that we're going gangbusters in transport. I'm hoping that electric vehicles genuinely reach their potential in the country. And I really, really would love, you know, the big, the big and challenging areas of heat and industry to be well on the way to the change, whether that's hydrogen, whether that's electric. Uh, we, are, we are fully, fully sort of on that journey and clear about the direction of travel we're going in. Um, but all of that is dependent on one thing. And... You know, one personal test I hold for myself, for the sector, and, and indeed for, for the regulator, which is public confidence. So we're only going to get all those things. And indeed, it's a fundamental part of my job to make sure that the public have confidence in the energy system that's around them. And going right the way back to those days in deck designing EMR, um, I think the more aware we are about the way people feel about their energy system, the more we, aware we are of, of how people want to be treated the more likely we are to succeed in the transition. So you've got two halves there. You've got a sense of people feeling that their energy companies are looking after them, are treating them well, and then you've got this transition happening alongside that. And if we get that in, five, in the next five years or, or we make the next step on that journey, that will be fantastic. And for Ofgem, it's really simple. 
I want two things. I, I want us to be um, and, to, and to grow as a cutting edge leading global regulator. And I set that ambition, you know, without, you know, not without thought. You know, Britain is one of the leading countries in terms of this transition. And we have an incredible amount to offer, not only here in terms of what we do, but in terms of the wider conversation about globally, how we're going to do this. And equally, I want it to be one of the best possible places to work. I want us to think as hard about making sure the offer we have to people in terms of the mission is matched with the way we run ourselves. And that's really about becoming more dynamic. It's about becoming more responsive. And it's about sort of matching the scale and pace that you normally get in, for example, other private sector organizations. And the reason for that is not only because I want people to enjoy what they do and to feel the kind of impact of the work they're doing, it's, it's because without that, I don't see how we do the former. I don't see how we become a cutting edge regulator and I don't see how we support the change we need to get to decarbonisation. If we get all that in five years, I'll be happy. And then we can talk about whether or not there's another five years in me or not. Yeah. So, well, it sounds like a big agenda. Uh, it, 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 yeah, the public confidence point such an interesting one. I mean, I think probably the, the greatest case study in the UK of that was probably the big, uh, for me at least, was probably the big six. And I think it was sort of trust levels were not high. Now, uh, you know, I, I don't think you blame the big six for everything because I, I mean, for a lot of it, indeed, you know, commodity prices were rising and bills were going up and, and people needed someone to blame, I think. But in other markets, I've seen networks blamed for that or I've seen others blamed for that. And then, you know, we have CMAs and price caps and, and, and you know, incentives for smaller suppliers. And, it, and, and, and I suppose it, it de, you know, destabilised the industry. Maybe it was a good, a good trajectory, but it was, it was a consequence of um, you know, Miliband proposing the price cap to start with the cost of, um, cost of eroding public confidence, I think. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful point. Um, I, I was going to ask you about uh, the UK as a regulation innovator internationally, but but I'm keen to kind of start to talk about some substa- substantive policy points. Um, on off, just quickly on Offgem, you talked when I asked you what Offgem did, you said there's this environmental bit and there's this consumer bit. I, I may be misremembering, but I, I reckon if I'd asked Offgem five years ago what's your objective, they would have said customers. They wouldn't have said. Um, well, they wouldn't have said, uh, you know, environment. And, I, and at that point, I already thought that was a bit, you know, there wasn't a kind of producer surplus bit. There was just a consumer surplus bit in terms of Offgem's focus, which doesn't always get you the, the, op, the optimal market outcome. When, when did the environmental focus pick up? And can you just briefly explain why that's important now and why it doesn't muddy the waters, I suppose, compared to the, the old emission? So, look, I think... Um so sort of the change that was made was made in Ofgem's objectives. I, I think it's just quite a while ago. So sort of um, 2012, 2013, through the Energy Act, we talked about looking after the interests of current and future consumers. And that was the beginning, I think, of a framing which has taken time to kind of embed within the regulator. And, and I do think if you go back a year or two, and in fact, if you ask my predecessor, Dermot, he would, he would be very committed to decarbonisation and to supporting decarbonisation. But I think you're right in the sense that I think there has always been this, this sense that really we're here for that first objective, protecting customers and particularly protecting customers today. And we do this other thing. And, and what I said on day one was, if you look at our statutory goals and you think about the interests of future consumers, then, it's, then decarbonisation is fundamental to what we do. Um, the reason why I think it doesn't muddy the waters, the reason why I think it's important is because if you're a regulator that doesn't embed in its thinking the need to get to net zero, you have a government and a regulator trying to do slightly different things, which, which in my mind will 
ultimately end up in consumers having to pay more because you have mm-hmm. two systems that aren't at least pointed towards the same end goal. So in my mind, if you just step back from all of this and think about what's in a customer's interest to, to get the best out of this system between now and, and 2050, it has to be to have a regulator that's thinking as deeply about decarbonisation as it does about the things that, ma- that really matter today. So security of supply and, and looking after customers. And as I say, I, I think this is, a, this is a further step on that journey, but it's a journey that the regulator's been through over the last five years, I would argue. Yeah, okay. Um, good. So, so networks, and you've you've recently released the t- the Rio tr- draft determinations. And for, for those who don't know, this is essentially, and again, this is my simplistic interpretation. Ofgem will say, right, network companies, um, this is how much you're allowed to spend, uh, you know, after a detailed submission, and this is the rate of the regulated rate of return we're going to give you on it. They're the they're the they're the two the two things the two key things that Ofgem decides. So you've told people how much they're going to spend and, and what the return is, and I think the industry response has been, well, we you know we'd like to spend a bit more than you've then you've asked you've told told us we can, and and we think the return should be higher, or we risk not not you know not having quite the right incentives to to invest. I suppose first question on this is: Was the industry response as you expected? So, so pretty much for this stage in the process. Um, and I think that the response was was really around around three things actually. And I think the thing we're saying this time, which is different to what we've said previously, um, and to come back to your characterization, what we said previously was, you know, with lots of bells and whistles and lots of formulae, here's a lump of money and here's a rate of return and here's some goals you, you've got to meet to, 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 to get that. And what we're really saying this time is, look, here is a, a lump of money to start with, but we are absolutely prepared as a regulator over time to flex this. And you know, we expect that flex to be upwards to make sure you can support the low carbon transition, because we think the scale of pace of change in the economy is going to be, be far faster and more variable than would allow us to simply say, well, here's a lump of money up front. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that structure is something that the industry is taking a little bit of time to, to adjust to. And they're asking us some very valid questions. And I think the most valid is, well, okay, you've got this reopener. How are you off, Jem, going to turn around decisions quickly enough so we can continue with our projects? And I think no. that is a valuable and a very fruitful area for us to be working collaboratively at the moment. That said, when you step back from it, you know, we, we do want to get to net zero. We are deeply passionate about it as an organisation, as a board, and myself as an individual. But equally, we want to do that at a price that balances that with the needs of those customers and maintains public confidence. And it's no secret that the, the, the regime we're in, so the current price control, is something that you know, we have been told probably led to um, cost to customers that were higher than we expected. Mm. Um, and certainly, you know, and certainly when you look at the, you know, when you look at the outcomes, great service, etc. But certainly sort of both rates of return and indeed some of the revenues that weren't quite where they should be. So we have learned those lessons. And, you know, my message to the industry is, in a sense, this price control, wherever it ends up at the end, and we are consulting, is aimed at giving you a massive opportunity. So, you know, there's, there's no doubt, whatever we do, particularly if you play in local networks, we are going to need to see huge investment into this sector, but we have to do that at a price that's affordable to consumers. And if we get that right, though, 
there is, you know, I, I think there is a huge opportunity for those companies to, to be successful. But any realignment like that, any realignment that says, look, we think this was a bit out of kilter last time, we'd like to readjust it. Of course, that's going to get a strong reaction. And I absolutely expected that when we launched. Yeah. Have you seen, I mean, presumably, these are, a lot of these are publicly listed. Have you seen a sort of cost of capital impact if you're moving to a more flexible system with reopeners and and it's not just here you know spend a big chunk of money and and here's a here's a return on it is there there any evidence you're seeing around what the market response has been to the announcements so the markets you know there was there was an initial dip but the markets roughly ended up where they were before after a relatively short space of time we have looked at benchmarks both within the uk energy sector but also in other sectors like water and that's what gives us confidence that we are roughly in the right place. Now, you know, the, the companies do have an opportunity now. And, and I've said to them really clearly, the thing that will change this regulator's mind is clear, robust evidence. So we, we'll look at that and we will look at that with an absolutely open mind. Mm-hmm. But the framing is really simple. The framing is, yes, we believe we need investment. Yes, we will support that wholeheartedly as a regulator but we have to get the, the, the cost to customers right as part of that deal. And if yeah. we get that, we're in a great place. And frankly, getting that right, maintaining public confidence is not just in the short-term interest of customers, it's in the long-term interest of keeping this transition going. Yeah, yeah, it sounds very sensible. Um, just quickly, one thing that struck me as well is all of these debates now play out like in public a lot more than they have historically, you know, there's Twitter, there's LinkedIn, there's the, you know, it almost feels like there's a whole, you know, there's not just the behind closed doors discussions. There's the sort of open debate and winning the hearts and the minds of the public. Now, do you, do you see this in off gem and, and do you sort of, are you consciously finding you need to build up the firepower to kind of have the debate on Twitter as well as, as well as in the, in the, in the uh, determinations? So like any, any public organisation, we are thinking really hard about the channels that we use. And, you know, you, I think if you're in any organisation that is doing something that impacts on the public, you have to look at social media and other channels as part of that. So absolutely, we are, you know, we are thinking about how we best communicate, not only in terms of these kind of very big debates, but also some of the really key facts that matter for, for people's lives. So again, going back to COVID, some of the things we did was just put out some guidance both for companies and, and some help for customers to access different kinds of support. And, and social media is a great vehicle, not the only vehicle, but a great vehicle to do that. Mm-hmm. And you've, one other aspect that interests me around the, the, the network regulation, then hopefully we have some time to talk about markets, is the, the different approaches it seems to me that the UK uses for offshore and onshore networks. So offshore, it's, it's more competitive, you know, the off-toe scheme, it's more, it's more competitive, probably more financialized. The, uh, the onshore, it's, it's more about being one of the transmission network owners and, and you get some scale economies and those types of things, presumably from, from that type of thing. Why do we have a, a like a, t- a two two type system? What is it about offshore that means we should treat them differently to onshore? So I think offshore has been a kind of forerunner for us actually, and the reason why it was an easier place to start was simply that you had very clearly defined projects, particularly in this early stage of development, where it was frankly a link from substation onshore through to an offshore wind farm. That was a very definable project and one that was therefore very, very suited to tendering. And certainly in financial and economic terms, I think it's, it, it's really clear that that has developed huge benefits for customers. Um, equally though, you know, as we say in Rio, we are excited and enthusiastic about bringing a competitive regime onshore, 
Um, the ideal way to do that is with the support of legislation that will allow us to, to be able to do almost the same thing. So we call our offshore, offshore regime OFTOs for various reasons. We've also talked a lot about something called CATOs, which are doing the very same thing with the onshore regime. It's funny though, I think that you're going to see equally that the challenge is changing the offshore regime and where we've had these sort of fairly clearly definable individual links, we are probably going to need some more kind of strategic investment that looks less like sort of individual sort of power lines out to one offshore wind farm and more like a mesh grid sort of off the coast. And that I think will throw up questions about the regime and, and how we run the regime. But whatever we do, we want to keep that sense of competitive dynamic because we do think that's, that's been very valuable to customers in, in, the, in the way we've tried it so far. Um, equally, I would like to see and to make sure however we configure the whole market that we have real competition between network and non-network alternatives. And one of the interesting things, John, that I think does come back to this question of whether EMR will sort of last for a very, very long time is the fact that whereas you had fairly sort of discrete parts of your market, so your customers, your network and your generators, those are all becoming much more substitutable. And I think that throws us questions, throws up questions of design that we're all going to need to think about. Yeah, and really complicated ones, I think. So, so I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you're thinking about them because they're, uh, once you start to think about, you know, smart devices and, and demand flexibility, it, uh, it overturns a lot, a, lot of the, a lot of the kind of grid code, I think, that we built up over, over a long period of time. And I see countries where, you know, the economics, the physics, they build a battery. Uh, but you just can't apply for the right, you know, the right grid connection to export or you know, to import or, so, or something like that. So it's, yeah. um, there, are, there are a bunch of issues, I'm sure. And a battery is something that imports and exports. That isn't what normally happens. No, people weren't thinking about that in the, you know, the 20 years yeah. ago. Um, okay, so can I, that's great. Can I talk briefly about markets? Um, so um, I suppose let me, uh, we talked about EMR and, and, and from what I hear, you know, my, my sense of what I picked up on was, um, you know, still broadly fit for, per you know, they're going to be tweaks. Nothing's going to survive in this rapidly changing world for a long period of time. But in general, the, you know, the, the concepts are, are good ones. W one of the things that interests me, your, your predecessor, Dermot Nolan, said, said uh, to me once, um, we... You know, had, had I had my time again, I would have loved to have explored locational marginal pricing, you know, no, nodal pricing, as some people call it. You know, I think he, he felt like the CMA kind of knocked him off course a little bit in his tenure. Um, where are you on that? Do, do you, I mean, this is a specific topic, but it would be a fundamental change to the market that, you know, people I think need to, need to think about already anyway. H how do you think about that? Is it on the agenda? Well, look, I think... Um we, we're part way through developing our strategy at the moment and we've, you know, we're beginning to think about the things that we really, really want to achieve in the next five years, so in the, in the next period through, through, that we're working through. And the more evidence we see, the, the more clear we are that this flexibility that I've described, so this different kind of retail market, this, this fungibility between networks and non-network alternatives, and indeed, you know, the interaction between generators, batteries, et cetera, and optimizing that is something that we think is going to drive the transition and create incredible value for customers. And I, I think what we want to do is to, is to ask ourselves very seriously, well, if that's where we want to get to, if that's the kind of place we want to get to, what are the things we need to put in place to get there? And, and all I'd say about location and marginal pricing is that's clearly a choice. That's clearly an option that's there. And there may well be 
things we need to do technologically. There may well be things we need to do elsewhere to make that happen. Um, so we don't have a firm view. We haven't certainly haven't sort of set a standard saying this is absolutely the way to get there. Mm-hmm. We do want to look at a wide range of options that are going to make sure we sort of, if you like, we match the reality with the rhetoric and we get to a very different kind and different shaped market that allow all of us to be able to optimize in a world that, as you say, is much more variable and much more complex, perhaps, in the world of sort of 10, 20 years ago. Now, there's a there's a bunch of other questions on markets that would have been great to cover. I'm re- at the moment, I'm really interested in the supply market and and the role of software there. Um, you know, Oct- Octopus, for example, have apparently a very slick piece of software that um, that that uh, that a number of people are starting to use and jump on, not just in this country and elsewhere. I, I was keen to ask about the impacts of that for competition, but I won't because time is running short. What I what I'd like to do though before we conclude is is ask you about a few concepts in the energy transition and ask you if you think they're overrated or or underrated. And the best answer is a one is a one word answer, Jonathan. So if you can do that, that's brilliant. If not, if you can't, then that's no problem at all. So let me let me start. So the first concept is carbon pricing for driving decarbonation decarbonization in the power sector. Do you think that's overrated or underrated? Uh, overrated on its own. I think you need more. Okay. So there's a role for it, but, uh, but there, are, there are other things required. So second concept, private company setting long-term net decarbonization targets. So, you know, we've had the likes of uh, BP recently talking about um, net zero by 2050. Uh, you know, but a lot of the companies in, in the UK operating have net zero targets by some point. Do you think, and obviously these targets are, you know, miles beyond the average tenure of any CEO. We're talking about 2040, 2050. In fact, no one there right now will be, will necessarily be, be responsible for actually seeing the net zero. Do you think these are overrated or underrated? Well, I think they're underrated. Um, I think they're underrated because, you know, if you think about the coalition for change that's being built around this transition, if those companies are making those commitments, they need to get into the conversation of how collectively we're going to deliver. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, in, I suppose it's a little bit like the principle of the, um, of the Climate Change Act, in a, in a sense. Someone needs to commit to, to the first, the first, the first uh, stint of decarbonisation. Okay, the third concept is, um, in a, and you've already spoken to this one, so I think I already know the answer, um, innovation within suppliers, within retailers. Do you think that's overrated as a concept or underrated? Underrated. I think it's a big. It's going to be a big part of our future, and we're just starting on that journey. Okay, excellent. And I, I had a fourth one, but I'm going to pull it because I think it could be a can of worms. And time is running short. I was going to ask you about complexity in network regulation. Is it is, is it is it overrated or underrated? But I, I'll leave that for another time. Hope hopefully. Um, Good, excellent. Well, that's a great point to to, to finish. Um, it, you know, hugely interesting, hugely enjoyable from my perspective, Jonathan. We covered an enormous amount of ground, uh, and you know, frankly, just a you know, re- really exciting to see what Offgem produces over the coming years. Because because as you know, as we both I think agree, it has an enormous impact on all electricity and energy consumers in this country. So, Jonathan Brearley, um, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Um, we are incredibly excited about what we're doing at Offgem, so good to talk about it. That was John Federson, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora, talking to Jonathan Brearley, CEO of Offgem. 
Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.